So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, some of us have grown apathetic to the truth. At times, Lord, I catch myself yawning at the gospel. And so I'm asking for myself, would you fan into flame my smoldering wick? Would you breathe afresh faith in us to really this morning uh, have an understanding of the riches that we have in Christ? Would you help that to land this morning on our hearts and minds? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever sat back and pondered? You know, where you sort of, sort of like fold your arms and maybe sit there and begin to say, what is the reason for it all? Why? God, did you do all this? Why create the heavens and the earth? Why the, the fall? Why the gospel? Why the church? Why have you done all these things? What is the grand purpose of it all? And you say, well, it's so that man could walk in relationship with his creator so that we could have this deep relationship with him. And you would not be wrong. You say, well, the reason for it all is because God's glory is to be magnified. We must make much of him, and this all makes much of his glory. And you also would not be wrong. You say, it was to show his enemies that if you mess with the bull, you get the horns. To which, hey, I like your style, but I think this morning we're actually given another insight. Don't worry, this insight will not negate or conflict with those previously mentioned, but it's going to add to the depth of them. An insight which gives us another angle, another vantage point to see from. And to make known to us, there are deeper reasons for it all. And some of these actually stretch our imaginations, if we're honest. So this morning's sermon title is Sci-Fi Mysteries. And so that you know where we are going, I will take these two in turn, but not in the typical order that we think of it as sci-fi mysteries. I will first cover the mystery revealed, and then we'll look at sci-fi realities. 
And so first it is the mystery, mystery revealed, which is verses 1 through 6, followed by sci-fi realities, verses 7 through 13. So first, the mystery revealed, verses 1 through 6. This morning's section in chapter 3 is really interesting. I, I picture Paul, he's very logical. And he's, if he was walking on a sidewalk through the book of Ephesians, and he's kind of going point by point, you could see, you could trace out his logical argument. Every step he's making is kind of building upon the one previously. We've mentioned before, but to remind you, verse, or chapters 1 through 3, Paul is giving us the doctrine. He's giving us what we believe. And then the logical turn happens in 4, 5, and 6, where Paul then begins to go in, how do we apply what we believe? If this is what you believe, how do you live in light of that? And that's where we'll go in chapters 4, 5, and 6. But everywhere he's going, it's a logical step in the next direction. But here, with this morning section, it is as if he was walking down the sidewalk, and he stops, and instead what we're seeing this morning, just for these 13 verses, is he will drill down, striking oil. Black gold, Texas tea. He's going to really get at something for us. And then next week we'll see he pops right back up and continues on where he left off. You can see this if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, and then at, down at verse 14. You'll see the same phrase, and this is because this is where he's going to pop up and continue on. He says, for this reason, verse 1, then verse um, 14, for this reason. So it's almost as if he pauses, drills down, and then we'll see next week he's going to continue on. And what we read this morning in this first verse, for this reason, Paul, he's, as he's been walking down the sidewalk, he's reaching back to what he just said at the end of chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. For this reason. What reason? The reason that I'm bringing this up and, I, and I'm here to be a minister to this gospel is this idea that God is building a united one. Jews, Gentiles joined together, recall the images, the temple. The body, you know, this home that's built up where we all are part of it, a united group as is church. For that reason, for this reason, I am a prisoner, prisoner of the Jewish Sanhedrin, no, prisoner of Caesar and Rome, not really. He's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Do you see that there? He's a prisoner of Christ. Amazingly, in Paul's view, even though he's in Roman chains, he says, the real prisoner that I'm a prisoner of is not Caesar. It's amazing to me that the tragedy that Paul is in, he's really seeing this whole thing as a victory. He's able to see, much like we saw with Job, there's more going on behind the scenes. Here Paul knows The case that while he's imprisoned, he believes God is using his imprisonment to make much of Christ and the gospel. This is how God works. And in our ways, you think, Paul, what you need to be, you need to be in an arena with, you know, 10,000 people listening to you preach. But God in his infinite wisdom has him in chains and using those chains for his glory. This leads Paul to highlight his unique ministry to the Gentiles to proclaim That the gates are open and you are free to enter. That God's grace is for you. And then when you become united to God himself, you become united to each other. So that natural born enemies are now a united one. I know that at some level this is just a given. You know that we 
we see the Jews and the Gentiles becoming one, we kind of say, well, okay, well, what's the big idea? I mean, if, if, a, if a Christian with 100% Jewish ancestry joined us here for worship this morning, we may not even know. We likely, even if they told us, we wouldn't even bat an eye or care. But you do need to understand, in Paul's day, to say that Jews and Gentiles were going to be coming to become one, it would be as if I said something as crazy as, God is going to do a work where he's bringing Muslims and Christians to worship in the same place and to worship the same God. You'd be saying, well, hold on. I, I don't quite see how this is going to follow. It would be akin to that sort of uh, strange statement. It's very odd. But this was what was revealed to Paul and what he was making clear to the Ephesian Christians. And this brings us then to this word, mystery. It's repeated four times in our passage here this morning. Mystery, mystery, mystery. You and I, I think we love a good mystery. I mean, Sherlock Holmes and all, don't we? We love the kind of whodunit. And yet, when we use the word mystery, typically we're using it in a particular way. It has certain connotations for us. You know, for example, I, I say, where are my sunglasses? I don't know. It's a mystery. Who broke into the ice cream before the birthday happened? I don't know. <laughs> it was a mystery. But, but then the moment you realize, oh, my glasses are on my head, or you see the, the chocolate on Steve's lips, you know the mystery is, we, is over. We, we no longer call it a mystery. It's, we, we know what happened. And yet, in first century Greek, it was common to maintain the word mystery, even though the riddle had been solved. The thing that was puzzling has now become clear but yet, it maintained this idea of it being the mystery. So Paul, for example, when he's speaking in Colossians, he puts it this way. So listen how this works, and then you'll understand it better for Ephesians. But he says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So he still maintains this thing is, has a mysterious aspect to it. But it's been, it's been revealed. It's understood. The mystery is, in other words, an open secret that those with eyes to see will be able to have perfect insight. The scripture increasingly reveals to us God's plan of salvation. It's called progressive revelation. The seeds that were there surely known in the Old Testament, but now have been known not like they were known previously. Now it's really fully been revealed to us so it can be understood. To which we say, okay, Paul, if it's a mystery that has been revealed, if it's an open secret, well, what is that? It's very clear. It's right here, verse 6. He says, The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And this was the truth that we've already seen Paul beginning to unpack and to hint at and to, to, to show us. Even back in chapter 2, verse 15, he says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace he might have reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The new reality that God was going to bring a people from all the nations into his fold, and not just into his fold, but that they would become the same to him as the Jews, that they would be special people, even his special people that were separate would now include one flock which has the Gentiles in it. You recall Jesus's parable where he talks about the laborers in the vineyard 
Remember where he says, I've hired some in the morning, the, the, the manager of the vineyard, and he brings them all in. He says, I'm going to pay you a denarius for your day's wage. And then at the very end of the day, there's like an hour left. He says, come on in. I need some more help. And he hires them and he pays them all at the very end the same wage. And remember that that sort of a thing infuriated the Jews. But this was the work of God that he was going to be doing. It was the illustration of the fact that God would be bringing in people from earlier to, to people, Gentiles later. That they would all receive the same rewards. They would be heirs receiving, as our passage says here, the same inheritance. The promise of eternal life that was available by faith for all who believe. So for those Jewish, Roman, Italian, Danish, Japanese, American, alike. They would all be the same recipients and heirs of this promise. I think of us. I think of Welchians. I think of Brightwoodians. I think of Zigzagians and Rhododendrons. Not the bushes, the people. And I just think this gospel is for these people here. All of them with their varied backgrounds coming from various places. Some here for many, many, many years and decades. Some here just moving here just last year. This gospel can be their gospel. This truth was there, but it was not until Christ come and the Spirit was here to reveal the fullness of what God was really doing. For if God was to bless Abraham and the nations were also going to be blessed from him, the question that people scratched their heads and kind of wondered about was like, what would these blessings be if it was to be for Abraham and his people, but also for the nations? And you say, well, if God was going to bless his own people with some sort of salvation, would the blessing for the nations end up being monetarily? Would it be with great food and crops? Would it be with gold and silver? And, and the answer is no, it's none of these things. It's something far, far more precious. The salvation afforded to the Jews was to be for all peoples. And here, you and I, we have to pause at the very heart of this gospel and see it is a uniting of people not just to God, but to one another. So then I'm confronted with and challenged by my own sin because I must recognize there cannot be room for me to say, well, I'm united to Christ and yet divided from my fellow Christians. For if I'm divided from the body of Christ, friends, the implication is I'm divided from Christ himself. The scary reality is that I must remain in this body to be connected to Christ. We must be connected to his church. Whether it's this church or another church, we must be connected to his church. And yet there's another implication that lands on our, on our church home here. If all the nations are to be in the kingdom, I would hope that we would all desire to reflect this. If we set aside language issues for a moment, we don't really want to see there being a white church and a black church and an Asian church. No. And a Hispanic church, no, we want, just as Paul is inferring here, the church. In other words, we must be a welcoming church that those of different ethnicities and skin colors and backgrounds would come in and go, you know what, these people love me like I'm their family and I belong to them. And so therefore, I can see that I belong here. And church, I would just say, this is something that I do see us being strong in, but I also would encourage us to continue in. Do not give up on this, that we would have open arms for everybody who walks through our doors. Well, with the mystery revealed, the mystery made known, hopefully clear, 
we then transition to the sci-fi reality. Now, before we answer that question about what the sci-fi reality is, Paul's going to do something interesting. As he's transitioning to that idea, he wants to make it known that he's not a ministry of the sci-fi reality because he's so great and awesome. No, rather, at verses 7 and 8, he makes mention of this. He says, of this gospel... I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me, given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, here you need to know Paul's not portraying some sort of false humility. You know the type of people who go, well, I'm just the worst. I just tell you, I'm just the worst. That's not what Paul's doing here. Rather, if you go back to the beginning of his ministry, his earthly ministry to the Gentiles did not begin in power. It it, it did not begin with his own strength of his own accord. It didn't rest in any of his own achievements and his his accolades and and his scholarly achievements or being a Pharisee or anything else like that. It began by him being blinded by the glory of Jesus, didn't it? Uh, It began by him... uh, pursuing the work of, of killing Christians. Um, he was not privileged with the joy of walking with Jesus for three years like the, the other uh, 12 apostles. Um, he was not able, like Peter, to say, hey, Jesus, if you go to death, I'm going to go to death with you. No, Paul's place prior to, to him being blinded on the road to Damascus was Paul was one who pursued Peter's. He chased after Peter's to ensure that they would die for Christ. And so to do a complete 180 here and to turn from a position of hatred of Christ to an advocate and minister and yes, even apostle, in a very real sense means he is the least of the apostles. And we can see from that vantage point, the Lord loves to use the weak things of this world to accomplish his greatest purposes. So that indeed, we, as we opened up with, we remind ourselves that the name of Paul means small. So that Paul can say, he can really mean, I am small Paul. And he can say, I'm the least of all the saints. So that small Paul, he is in fact then highlighting, even as he's humble, he's got a big message, a huge message in which he gives us this morning. He is the instrument that was used in a particular to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the nations, to the ethnos, to the Gentiles. While Peter was primarily to minister to the Jews back in Jerusalem, Paul has a special ministry to go to the Gentiles. And as he's holding this precious gospel, verse 90 says, I'm coming to bring light for everyone what was the plan of the mystery, again, the mystery hidden for ages in God who was created, who, who created all things. God, the creator who has created it all, was also creating a new people. And this message was not uh, only to be a message for the nations, but for the spiritual beings. This is where we kind of come to this sci-fi reality in verse 10. Now catch this where he says in verse 10, so that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, some of you men here who are familiar with working on cars, you you know that the manifold is a particular place in the engine where a mixture happens. Things are coming together. It's the place where the fuel and the air mixture happens. 
And I think this is uh, helpful for us as we see this is a place where everything's coming, coalescing at a single point. Perhaps, if helpful for others, you can think of a kaleidoscope. When you look through a kaleidoscope, you have these many colors and fragments kind of coming. And if you back out, you kind of zoom out, you get this singular, beautiful image of, of this multicolored thing. And that idea of multicolored or manifold is not far off. It's the very word that's used actually back in Genesis when speaking of Joseph's coat of many colors. It's this manifold color, many colors. And here we read the manifold wisdom of God, this wisdom that kind of is all coming in at different angles, all coming to a single point, that this is for the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly places. Now this phrase, rulers and authorities in the heavenlies, it's also found at the end of our book. Now you are, many of you are familiar with Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God, where Paul says we're to take up the armor of God, <coughs> excuse me, and he speaks there in, in Ephesians 6 about the rulers and, and, the, and the authorities and the heavenlies, but it's spoken of, it, well, listen, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's very clear there in Ephesians 6. It's in reference to these powers and principalities that are bound up with evil. Here, that's not mentioned, but we do have similar phrasing. It seems to me that what is being mentioned here is more broadly, that he's speaking broadly to say the spiritual beings, the, the heavenly beings, most likely good and evil together, um, both in, including good and evil spirits. I love the quote from sci-fi writer and thinker Arthur C. Clarke, where he says, there are only two possibilities. We are either alone in the universe or we are not, and both are equally terrifying. <laughs> it's, it's sort of funny, and, and yet Christianity makes it very clear it is the latter. Friends, we are not alone. And being that that is the case, let me bring you back to my opening question. Why did God do all of this? What was the point? Why? Why did God create all these things? Was it just to express his judgment? Or was it all just only for his glory? Or was it just to walk in a relationship with us? Well, here at least adding to the depth of those concepts, Paul says that part of the reason for all of this is so that the angelic spirits will know that God is wise. In other words, Gentiles are members of the same body with the Jews through the gospel, which is God's manifold wisdom being revealed to the spiritual powers. Let me state this as most simply as possible. God made the world and the church so that the angels and demons would know that God is wise. Are you telling me that at least in one part, the reason why God planned the world, the fall, the gospel, the coming together of natural born enemies into one united people in Christ is so that the cherubim and the seraphim and Michael the archangel... And the powers of darkness, and yes, even Satan himself, would know that God is wise? Yes, those are Paul's words, not mine. The wisdom of the cross, the wisdom of the gospel and the church makes it so that we can view this world a bit like a stage in which the angels and the spiritual forces are almost in a stadium looking in on us 
watching what is going on here. And through that, they're discovering the manifold, multicolored wisdom of God. All this and more through the church. Because as they look in, they're learning about grace as opposed to mere works righteousness. They're learning about forgiveness. They're learning about reconciliation. And they're learning about union. John Stott puts it very sharply when he says, It is through the old creation, the universe, that God reveals his glory to humans. And it is through the new creation, the church, that he reveals his wisdom to the angels. The reality that we cannot miss is that angels are paying attention to us and the church. And when they do pay attention to us, they're discovering and making more insight into who God himself is. This is right in line with what the Apostle Peter speaks of in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and following, where he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but they were serving you. In these things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which the angels long to look. So Peter says, even the angels are trying to figure this out. And if I could just place a, a footnote here, what, what I would want to say is, this whole unfolding mystery of God, this plan of God and salvation, it is not just for the authorities and the rulers and the heavenly places to be looking in and going, how does this all work and why? If you are with us this morning and you have yet to really, truly believe in this Jesus that we are talking about, this gospel that is a mystery revealed, this is for you too to look in on it and see. My hope is that this morning, that you would look in on this body of Christ and that you would come to see and believe this is a genuine work of God. You see, anybody can bring people together for a couple hours, you know, go to the movie theater, everybody's there from different backgrounds. Anybody can do that for an hour or some other event. But to bring people together in such a way that many of you have been here, not just for years, but for decades together through, through ups and downs and yet continuing to praise the same Jesus. Friends, that's a work of God. And for God to continue to do this same work for thousands of years. Do you not see that this is the manifold wisdom of God to do this? And so your homework out of this passage, if you're struggling to believe this or not, don't believe this, your homework is to go home and to, to ask yourself, am I being called by God? Is the gift of God's grace that is mentioned in verse 7, is this supposed to be for me too? My sin is what Jesus says he died for. It's the very reason for the cross. Do I believe that? Do I believe that God is doing a work through the church that I could be a part of? I mean, look, at, look and see verses 11 through 12 here where he says, this was according to the eternal purpose, purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You, you must ask and see and come to the logical conclusion that belief in Jesus is the only path forward for you to receive the grace of God in your life. And that only by the grace through faith will you be withheld from the judgment that is coming upon the demonic forces someday. It's only by the cross that you will receive that needed grace. Well, church members, those who believe 
in this Jesus. Those who put their trust, those who've united themselves, not just to Christ, but to each other. There are a handful of ways I'd like to show that I believe this passage lands on us. So first, I hope you see through verses 1 through 13 that this is something that's worth a bit of blood, sweat, and tears. Paul began in in verse 1 by saying, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then as a sandwich, at the very end, he comes right back to this idea. He closes with it in verse 13. He says, So I ask that you do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. In both these cases, Paul is saying, I am suffering and it's with a good reason for your glory that this mystery would be revealed to you. Long sentence. I hope you see that even as a prisoner of Christ, there was a purpose behind it. And so we join Paul in suffering for the sake of the gospel. And friends, we suffer in such small, small ways, don't we? I mean, a little loss of time, a little loss of respect, a little loss of finances or energy. Kevin DeYoung wrote on this passage saying that if presidential campaigns can raise millions of dollars, can recruit thousands of volunteers, and make hundreds of speeches all for a human leader and a human message, how much more should we press on in the face of suffering when we announce a divine message and serve a heavenly king? After all, the sufferings of Christians following our crucified Savior are preparing a weight of glory for us beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second, I hope, church, that you would see that this is at the very heart of the gospel. Our church is at the heart of it because, as you see, there's been an overemphasis in our American Christianity that says our relationship with Christ is primarily personal. And yes, it's true that patterned over and over in the scriptures is us to be having that personal relationship with Jesus, what's also patterned over and over in scripture is us being part of each other. That different folks with different ethnic backgrounds come together as one people. When an ethnically Jewish man worships alongside with an ethnically Spanish woman, they should see that spiritually they are brothers and sisters and actually share in some ways more in common than they might with their real biological brothers and sisters. I recall when... I was in Ireland uh, with my mother and we, we looked up a church because we wanted to try and attend a church over there while we were there. And so we found one and we, their statement of faith, probably very similar to our statement of faith here in this church. And so we went there and I, in some ways I was taken aback. I was totally shocked. Here we were in a church and, it, and this church, because it was situated in Dublin, did have people from everywhere. I mean, everywhere uh, you know, almost all the continents were represented in that, in that little congregation. And as I worshiped, I was recognizing, you know, they're taking communion just a lot like we're taking communion. They're singing the same song, some of the songs that we actually sing on our Sundays. The pastor got up and he opened up God's word and did very much what I'm doing right here with you. And I was just taken aback about how much I was united with these people that I've never met before and shared so much in common. So that when we nodded to the truths that were being preached, when we sang the same words, it it, it was like I just was home, even though I was thousands of miles from my home. And, you know, in some ways, after studying this passage again in Ephesians 3, I wish I could have gone back and just whispered into my ear while we were worshiping and just say, Thomas, don't miss. This is the wisdom of God. This is God's plan. And just don't, don't miss that. 
It would have helped me to appreciate and enjoy it all the more. Third and finally, if this great plan and work of God is revealing something to the angels, and what we are doing here as we gather is of great importance, not just for this day or week, but it's of historical value, universal value, earth and heaven value. When we gather to worship Jesus, we are telling, very plainly from this passage, we are telling the watching angels, the powers, the principalities, we are telling the, even the powers of darkness like Satan himself, we're telling him, you lose. Christ is one and you lose. We're making that very known. And we will worship God for who he is. And we will be a united front against the evil that encircles us. When we are dead and buried until the coming of Christ, this church will continue to confound and surprise the watching powers and principalities of the air as they see God is wise. We will continue to declare a single message in which we stand that Jesus is the Christ. And that we will do as the professing Peters have done where Christ will build upon that profession and the gates of hell will not prevail against the gospel. Don't you see, church, something is happening here. Something is being revealed about the wisdom of God that if he didn't do all this, it would have remained hidden. If God did not bring us together like this, the angels would not know. There would be something about God that remained unhidden. But when you and I come together and we sing, when you and I are out in the hall together and we're praying, when you make a meal and you take it over to another congregant's uh, home to care for them, when you help provide financially for someone here in need, when you join together in Bible studies saying, I want to dig deeper on what God has told me, we are declaring a message and making known the wisdom of God. That happens through God's wisdom through the church. And it's being revealed to where the angels, when they see this, only when they see this do they look back and they go... Aha, I see it now. It's all so clear. God is good and he is wise. Well, let me close with a quote from Mark Dever. It's a, one of his quotes that I, I appreciate so much. I put it on a, uh, on a little fold-out sheet of paper in my office and I look at it regularly to remind myself, what is it that we're aiming for here as a church? He says, the, the question he raises is, what do you look for in a church? Then the answer that he gives I love, because it actually encapsulates this chapter here in Ephesians 3. He says, what do you look for in a church? How about a group of pardoned rebels whom God wants to use to display his glory before all the heavenly hosts because they tell the truth about him and increasingly look just like him, holy, loving, and united. This is exactly what Church on the Mountain is aiming for. This is why we exist and bound up with the reason God created it all. That we would before all the heavenly hosts tell the truth about him as you and I look more like him, holy, loving, and united. Would you pray with me? Now, Lord, we pray in line with Paul that you would dwell in our hearts by faith. And that you would give us eyes this morning, even now, to see behind the veil. That we would, with eyes of faith, 
see the ways that you were at work in our personal lives, but in the life of the church, the, the mystery of God's gospel revealed in and through your people. And I pray, Father, that we would not lose sight of that, that it would spur us on in faith as we move forward. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.